0: I pray, Father. I just thank you, Lord, for um, what's already happened in this space this morning. I thank you for um, tears uh, shed by me and by many, even in this space, Lord. That um, may we be reminded that they were shed by you as well. That you are a Savior who gets it, um, because what we have already sung about, and and prayed about, and read, and listened to as your Word was spoken over us, um, it was. Um, our sins that were put on you and the wrath of God was poured out on you. You understand what it feels like to to feel forsaken even when you know you're not. Lord, you know what it feels like to be wounded, to be broken, even when you know that the enemy is going to lose. Lord, I pray that you would Use the time that we're going to spend in the Word to do what it does, as your Spirit does what He does, and that is it would conform us into the beautiful image of your Son, Jesus. Lord, that the only answer for all that we see happening in our world and in our lives truly is to behold Christ the King, that you are who you say you are, that you have done what you said you would do, and that you will finish what you have started. Lord, I thank you for that because I need that in my life. We need that in our lives and it will be accomplished by the power of your spirit and for the glory of the name of Jesus you will do these things and that is why we gather. And all God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat, if you would. Let me ask you a question. It's in your um, bulletin, on your on your notes sheet in the back of it. It's our first talking points question, and it is: If you had to finish the phrase, this phrase, with one word, what are some of the words we would use? Words like like. Try to keep your answers like to a word or a phrase. Jesus is our blank. Our home. That's. Hope, hope. Sorry, home works too. Hope, good. Jesus is our hope. I heard? Savior. Savior. What else? Friend. Strength? Peace. Friend. friend. Guys, listen to these words. Let them like, I'm not going to remember them all, so listen to them and let them like wash over your soul. Right. We have hope, and we have Savior, and we have um, strength, and we have friend, and we have what else? Peace and rock. Peace and rock. What else? Foundation. Foundation. Our joy. Let me stop right there just because I know something my brother's going through a time that that is not the first word he would naturally use. So that's of the spirit, brother. Thank you. Safety. Safety. What else? Like, we could go on, I mean, honestly, like, we could go, like, he, because he is, he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who is and was and is to come. He is the Almighty, he is the Counselor, he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is, like, he is all of those things. Oh, by the way, he's also the King. Right? Like, that's what we're talking about here, since we're in the Gospel of Matthew, but he is the king. So I want you to turn, if you would, to Matthew. I probably should get there, too. To Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in chapter 8, but we're going to start in chapter 7, where we have kind of left off. We've talked about this a few times. Look at the very end of Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 28, and... And this is after what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent weeks upon weeks upon weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Started way back, I think, in like maybe September or October. Took a break for the Advent season, and now we're um, and then we finished up the, the rest of the sermon, and now we're we're finishing up and at the end of this amazing time of teaching. Not it's it's not the only big block of teaching. Matthew shares actually five sermons that that Jesus talks about. But at the end of this first one where he launches his public ministry as an adult. It says, um, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their scribes or not as their normal teachers. And I've asked this question before as he talks about authority. Does he have authority in your life? Is he the authority in your life? Meaning when his word and his will comes up against your the, the, the words that are being whispered in your ears by your flesh and by the world and by the enemy, are, is his authoritative word preeminent in your life? Right? Is, is his will, are you willing to say, even if it's something that you don't want to let go of, when, when, when you hear an answer to a prayer and it's not the answer you wanted, but you know it's an answer, are you willing to say, not my will, but thy will be done? Right, like ultimately, those are the tests for whether he has authority. Now, guys, what, we're t- what we've been talking about in this series is, is this idea of um, the kingdom of heaven and how Christ is the king and, and what Matthew is trying to convey. The reason Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel is for that very reason. It is to show Christ is king. The other gospel writers write from a, from a different perspective to a different audience. What, what Matthew is trying to convey to us right now, to them then, is make no mistake, Christ is the King. Now he does that in a very unique style because he was Jewish. And so he writes, he doesn't write like sequentially more like Luke and Mark would write. So Mark and Luke are far more, um, we're far more Roman in their t- education. And so they tend to teach sequentially. So if you read through the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke, Luke it is chronal. they're chronological more or less. The Gospel of Matthew is not at all Matthew is writing to, from the premise of Christ is king. Now, I'm going to show that through this series, like through these loops of narrative like here's what happened and then discussion or sermons or um or or Jesus teaching. And so this first one we saw was Matthew 5 through 7 was this was this ser- was this long sermon where Jesus is saying he's showing the people what what I just read the reason they're like in awe going he has authority is because they had never heard teaching like this. They're like wow, what's up with this guy? Not only is he teaching from a place of like, I don't have to listen to what the Pharisees say or what your other rabbis say. I'm teaching something like that's expanded. But then he also does it, he, what, what he's teaching them is very different from what we think of as being, I mean, he talks about how, how the, the least shall be the most and the most shall be the least and how blessed are the merciful and blessed are you when you're persecuted and and, all the, and how we're supposed to forgive our brother and sister when they wrong us and all these things that are very upside down from this earthly kingdom. And and what he was showing us is, I am king, this is my kingdom is come, and my kingdom people look distinctly different. Now what he's gonna tell us is it, what what Matt, what Matthew now is gonna do is he's gonna say, so in light of chapters five through seven, Jesus is he's gonna he's gonna share some accounts of Jesus' life in chapters eight and nine, where Jesus is saying, and now I'll prove it. What I just said, here's how you can believe what I just said, because I'm going to prove to you that I am king. So so this next block of scripture that we're going to take several weeks to get through, chapters 8 and 9, basically, it ends towards the end of chapter 9, what we call chapter 9, Matthew didn't write it as a chapter, but towards the end of chapter 9, is basically to to authenticate his authority that he just spent chapters 5 through 7 telling us about. He is, by the end of this time, and, and we're going to, and, and because Matthew is Jewish, he cycles through these stories. He doesn't tell them chronologically. He tells them in this ever deepening, like that's what the Jewish people do. They would start with the truth and, and they would sort of connect it, and then they would get to a deeper part. Same idea, but a little bit deeper unfolding, and then they would get to a, ver- a little bit deeper unfolding. That was a very Near Eastern way of writing, a very Jewish way of writing. And so Matthew now is going to say, hey, what, like, so, so all that to say this, what I'm going to touch on some things today that we will go into greater depth in next week and we'll go into greater depth in the week after because because my job, whoever whoever's up here, it's not just my job, whatever leader is up here teaching, our job is to preach what's there. Right? And, and in the midst of, of a world that, that that is that feels like it's falling apart and we're lamenting the loss of our culture and, and, and all as Christians and all these things, like I, I understand like well why wouldn't we be doing a series on the dangers of transgenderism? Or why wouldn't we be doing a series on on how to vote biblically? Or why wouldn't we be Because Because there is no better way to do any of that to confront what's going on in our culture than to put in front of us all the time who Jesus is, right? My biggest problem, and yours too, for every, because, because everybody that I disciple, big, small groups, one-on-one, whatever it is, students that I have at ACU, guys, our biggest problem is to simply live the way he's told us we are. Like, it's, that's it. If, because, and here's, but, here's, but there's a problem behind that problem. My, my active problem is I don't live consistent with the identity he died for. The reason I don't is because I don't really believe it. I don't, I'm, in those moments that I'm doubting, I don't really believe he has ultimate authority. That's the bottom line. It all comes back to, are we just going to believe Jesus? And that may sound like a church answer. I'm just telling you, it's the only answer that will play in your life. And it's the answer that that he is going to give, and it's why Matthew writes the way he does. What Matthew wants to show us is, hey, guys, Jesus is the one. God's story from the beginning, what the Jewish people would have heard was God's story from the beginning. They didn't see it play out the way, obviously, It's why they crucified Christ. They didn't see it play out the way we see it as Christians, but they see this idea of God created, man rebelled, Jesus came to redeem, and he will come again to restore. And what Matthew's trying to show us is that Jesus, that, that, that gospel, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, is Christ's story. So he's trying to convey this in so many ways of connecting it to the Old Testament and modeling a little bit of Moses' life and all kinds of just crazy ways. But one last thing before we actually jump into the passage. As we're looking at, at Scripture anytime, we talk about things like context is king. The other reason I just spent the last 10 minutes on that backstory of where we're at today is because. One of the other questions we want to ask when we're looking at a piece of scripture, and and, and because we can't go through all of chapter eight through through the end of chapter nine all in one Sunday, I already preached too long as it is. Then what we have to, but what we have to ask is in this section of scripture where we're at today, which is Matthew eight one through we're gonna really seventeen, but we're gonna get through twenty two today. Is we have to ask ourselves: Is what's being presented here descriptive or prescriptive? So that's, a, that's another hermeneutical question that we want. Hermeneutics is just is the lens through which you view Scripture. And so, when we, or through, through any writing, actually, but biblical hermeneutics would be like how you view the Bible. And so we want to ask ourselves the question, is what we're seeing here descriptive? In other words, is Matthew just describing what was going on for the, so that it will con, so that it will convey the point he's trying to make? Or is it prescriptive? Is it prescribing... What we're supposed to do, like how we're supposed to live today. Now, here, now I'll just tell you right now, not, it's not always really clear. Like we can't always go, well, this passage is total is oh, is descriptive, and we got to take it that way. And this passage is always there are some things when like when Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew says, therefore go and make disciples. That's not a descriptive passage. That is a prescriptive passage. But there are places where you look and go, it's not always as clear. But but we want to filter. Like our reading through lenses that, that, that get us as close as we're able, as, as broken people. And nobody has a perfect lens, including me. It's why, you need to be, it's, why, it's why even today, as I'm reading, you need to have your face in your Bible to see if what I'm reading is really there. But, but is, we need to be filtering our, our readings through the lenses that will get us as close as is humanly possible to what Jesus meant for it to say for why Matthew meant to share it. And so, so we're going to start all of that, s- last part of the introduction, look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 8. Because this isn't just the key. Guys, so remember, this, this whole next section goes from Matthew, the start of Matthew chapter 8 to Matthew 9:34, basically, almost the end of chapter 9. This verse right here is the key to the passage, or to the whole section. He says, these things happened, or this was to fulfill this, what we're going to read today, also what we're going to read next Sunday. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, our calling passage. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's the point Matthew's trying to make. He's saying, he is king, he is Lord, his kingdom is different. And and to prove that he has the that he is not just the one who proclaims the kingdom, but is the power of the kingdom, I want he's gonna show us that he was, that one, he had the power to heal and to and to, to the power over creation. We'll see it next week. But but also he has, the, he has all authority to do what he does however he wants to do it. And that's ultimately the point. Matthew is quoting in Isaiah. 17, or in Matthew 17, he's quoting the passage that John read in Isaiah 53. So, as we're looking at this today, ask yourselves those questions Is it descriptive or prescriptive? Why is this pa- verse in this passage? Why is this passage in this chapter? Why is this chapter in this book? Why is this book in the Bible? Books in the Bible to show Jesus is king. This section of the scripture is to show Jesus has the power of a king. And in this case, he has ultimate power because he is the ultimate king. So with all that, that's the first power we're going to look at. So this week we're looking at the power, Jesus has the power to work miracles. To work miracles. Next week, just to kind of give you, like we're going to look at, Jesus has the power to command creation. And we're going to see that as well. And that's physical creation and spiritual creation. So my question today that we're going to look at is, have you witnessed the miracle worker? Have you witnessed the miracle worker in your life and in the world? Because what, what Matthew wants to show us is Jesus comes down off the mountain and he's saying, "Hey, I want you to see how Christ, just from just I want you to touch on next week deeper, following week even deeper still. I just want to touch on here's how he, here are some of the areas Jesus works miracles, and he and he does like three big areas throughout this these three, two ver- or two chapters. He does like. He has the power over human brokenness meaning like our like like sin, sickness and disease. He has power over creation and he has power over the spiritual realm. And Jesus or, and Matthew's going to show us those three things. Like physical healing or brokenness, physical brokenness, creation, and the physical realm. He's going to show us that multiple times in these two chapters. So, with that, let's get to the first point. So, have you witnessed the miracle worker from close up? Have you witnessed the miracle worker from close up? So let's look at chapter 8 and starting in verse 1. Why do my introductions in my notes, I say it's going to take 5 minutes and that just took like 10 or 12? I don't know. Anyway, because honestly, guys, if we don't understand like, what I just spent all that time talking about, that wasn't just to get to this. Like, that's probably the most important part of the message, what I just shared. Because all the rest of this, we're going to see throughout these coming weeks. And, guys, it is so important that we have a a correct lens when we look at scripture. And so, otherwise, we can get sideways in a big hurry, and sometimes still do anyway, and so that's why we need each other. Get Back to that whole idea of the mirror analogy we've talked about for several weeks here. We, I need you, you need me, here we go. So have we seen him close up? So he comes down off the mountain, there were great crowds following him. Wasn't that interesting? Because one of the things that we hear is that, well, Jesus. part of why Jesus performed the miracles was to be attractional, was to attract a crowd. It had nothing to do with it nothing to do with it. Jesus was not performing miracles to, 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 so people would go, wow, look at, the woohoo! let's go to the circus, right? How do we know that? Well, we know for a lot of reasons, but right here in one verse, how do we know that? He wasn't attracting a crowd. Why? He already had one. It says he comes down from teaching a really long sermon, and a great multitude is following him. His teaching attracted people. It wasn't his miracles. His miracles were for what we talked about in verse 17 to, to demonstrate his identity, to authenticate his identity. Now it says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, guys, there's, I mean, I, man, we could, I could do a whole sermon on just that one verse. Because here's the thing, leprosy at that point in, in the world, like it, I mean, it was the only, in Jewish culture, and well, actually anywhere in that culture, the only thing more disgusting than a, than a person with leprosy in their culture was a dead body. That was it. Like in, their, in, in the law of Leviticus 14 and, and other places in, in the Old Testament, like a leper was the dreg of society. They had to they had to stay 50 feet away from everybody all the time. They had to tear their clothes so people would know they were a leper. And oh, by the way, they had to um, if they were down if they were upwind of people, they had to be 150 feet away from people. So they were, I mean, you talk about feeling isolated and lonely. And here's the thing, leprosy most of the time took 20 years for people to die of. This was not like, oh, I got leprosy, and and so I'm going to be lonely for a year. This was their life. It was dying, like literally, without getting into the graphics of it, literally one piece of their body at a time until they finally just died. And it was more than just the physical pain and it was so much um, uh, like the emotional distress, the loneliness. Guys, What we're hearing and we're seeing, even the government has put out this, like there is an epidemic of loneliness. In a world that where we're supposedly more connected, and we all have like five thousand friends on Facebook, and we have—which by the way, they're not your friends—and and and like we all like we're the the epidemic of like the loneliness is massive, especially among the young people who would who you think or who who we would think would be most connected by the technology, because that's not—we weren't designed to connect that way. We were designed to connect not this way. We were designed to connect this way. To look at someone's face and say, "Man, I see you. I see you. Let me let me come over. I see your pain, and let let's come over and physically touch you, and remind you that you have been seen." Guys, people need to be seen. We went out to dinner last night, and and we just we were just on our out just to get out of the house for a little bit. So we went out to a little place, and this very sweet little waitress. Um, I can't remember what her name was. To, it, that not matter. Um, but, you know, what was it? So we just engaged. It wasn't really busy. So we just engaged because we were eating at like 4 o'clock like old people do. And, um, and we, but the girls were with us, so they're old too. And so we, um, so we're just engaging with her and talking with her and asking her about her life. And you know what was so interesting? It's like the more we talked to her, the more drawn in she got. And I think ultimately what it was was she's like, these are people who see me. Like they actually see me. And it mattered to her. Right? So, all that to say, here's this leper. He comes at great, like, like he is breaking every rule. They could have killed him instantly for this. He comes up to Jesus, and then he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He, get this, he doesn't doubt Jesus' power for a minute. He doubts whether Jesus wants to. He doesn't say, if you can, he says, if you will. Why is it so much easier for us to believe in someone's power, he believes in his power, than in someone's love? The question this leper has is, do you love me enough to heal me? I believe you can do it, but do you love me enough to care? It is easier for you and I to believe in someone's powerful authority than to believe in their just unconditional love. Why? Because we don't see that very often. That's part of why it's so hard for people to come to believe in the gospel. So he says, if you if you can make me clean. And then he says, and then he goes on and he says, um, and, and then it says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and said, I will be clean. It's just two words in the Greek Thielo and Carthirizo. It just means, he just actually just said, he just said two words, Thielo and Cartherezo. It just means, it means I will be clean just spoke two words, he just, and, and instantly the man is healed. But Jesus did more than speak his word. What did he do? He touched him. In that culture, what, that, what would that immediately have made Jesus unclean? Jesus is making a point here. Matthew's making a point about sharing that little tidbit. He touches the leper to say, in your culture, this would make me unclean, and now I'm in his boat. I come to heal the broken. I come to invite the lonely in. I come for the people who are hurting, and, and, I, and I do what I always do. What he's still doing, guys, he reaches out. What I tell my, my students at ACU, Jesus is always first. He is always previous. He always reaches out to us. He's, from the garden, God pursued Adam and Eve. It wasn't the other way around. There is no part of your life, there is nothing you could have done or not do that will will cause him not to pursue you because it's not about you. It's about him. And his heart is a pursuing heart. So he reaches out, he touches this leper, and he says, I will be clean. And then it says, and instantly the leprosy cleansed him. Guys, it's what Jesus does. And then Jesus said, see to it that you don't show anyone, that you show nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as proof for them. So he's, he's pointing the people that are listening back to the Levitical story. Because what they would have to do is, as Old Testament lepers is, is, and there weren't any healed, but if they were healed, they'd have to go to the temple and present themselves as clean to the priest to, be, to, be, um, to basically be blessed as clean. So he's basically saying, hey, I'm the new priest, now, you, you go and you tell them, but I'm the one who actually did this. That's ultimately what he's telling us. Guys, take a look at um, your, your second talking points question. Have you noticed that Jesus seems to respond differently to the most needy, the most sinful, the ones who most recognize their brokenness? That what the world puts down or passes over, he picks up. What might, how might that impact us as his kingdom people? What the world puts down, Jesus picks up. What the world rejects, calls unclean, Jesus pursues. Does that define the church? Does that define our church? Does that define your family? Are we the, oh, how could they? Or are we the, of course they do. Of course we're that way. Because they don't know Christ. Or because they're, maybe they say they know Christ, but they, they, they have a long way to grow. Right? Like that should, that should be what defines us. Because it's what defines him. Guys, I say this often, I'm going to say it again. Jesus has compassion on the people who know they're broken. He is only ever harsh to the people who think they don't need him. And that's true for believers too. The minute you as a professing believer start going, yeah, but I don't need Jesus for this area of my life, he will come in authority. So we need to be ready for that. Guys, we need to be ready to to, to embrace people the, the way... Jesus does. I was going to have you turn there. I won't in the interest of time, but just make a note. 1 Peter chapter 5. Guys, in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in around like verse 5 or 6, it talks about Peter's writing towards the end of this first letter to a church that's being persecuted. This is years and years after, Jesus, um, after, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's at least 30 years later. And he's talking about resist the devil and he will flee you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. But then here's the part that in 1 Peter 5 verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered for a little while, this is what happened to this leper. This is what happened to you if you got saved. This is what will happen. This is what will happen if you come to faith in Christ. This is what happens in your moment of need. But after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Like, that's a verse we need to hold on to. He'll do it. And that's what we'll see in this next point. It says, so the power, so, so, so have we seen him, like this, the, the miracle worker, from up close, like the leper did, and then also from far off, like the centurion? And I hope this next point goes faster. It says, and when and when and when he has. So I'm in verse five. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward. To him, appealing to him. So what happens here? So, so just so you know, all of what's going on in this part of Jesus's ministry is, if you put the map of Israel up, is happening up in the area of Galilee. So Nazareth is kind of west of. I don't know what would west be to you guys. West would be over here, right? So west would be. Um, so Nazareth is here. Jesus would go back and forth between between the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth oft, often. Jerusalem is down 70 miles south of all of 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 um of the Sea of Galilee. So on the on sort of the north west edge of the Sea of Galilee. I was blessed to get to go there in 2017. We actually walked there from Nazareth, quite a journey. Um, our, our, I'll just let you, know little, let you know a little secret. Our Savior was in shape. And, um, and so um, at, on the very sort of northwest edge, there's a city called, or it's a, a city, it's, a, it's, a, it's not even a village, called Capernaum. It's where, it's where Peter was from. And there are some um, there are some old um, ruins, not very well excavated, because frankly, it isn't really in the interest of the Israeli government to um, to allow like archaeological digs that prove Christianity, right? It's just the way it is. So, so you, like even on this, you see like how much of it has not been excavated, even off to the bottom edge of that. But but they believe that this was like where Peter lived, etc. So Jesus is coming down. He's gonna he's gonna um, he's in this part of 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 Galilee, which was very Roman I mean it was all Roman controlled, but this particular part was more Gentile than Jerusalem was. And it says, and then and then it says, and a centurion came to him. A centurion the reason Matthew shares that story is because a centurion by 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 definition had at least eighty, if not the name he got, a centurion, a hundred soldiers. So this was a man of authority. So when, when Matthew says a centurion came to him, what he's conveying is a man with earthly authority came to Jesus. And Jesus is gonna show his his like kingdom authority. So we keep going. It says, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come to heal him. Well, right there, that response is massively different because in that culture, a Jewish person, especially a Jewish rabbi, which is what everybody would have thought Jesus was at that point, would never enter the home of a centurion unless they were ordered to for some reason. And the centurion knew that because Jewish people wouldn't go into the homes of Gentiles because that would make them unclean. And it says, and the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now look at why he says that. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to them, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he is, So, what he's showing, this is important for the scene. This is why Matthew shares the scene of the centurion servant being healed. It's because he wants, one, he wants to show that proximity doesn't matter, that, his, that Christ is so authoritative in his kingdom, he can not only heal by touching, he can heal by just speaking to somebody who's a ways away, and they'll be healed. But the other reason is because he wants to convey this man of authority recognized Christ's authority. Otherwise, his request makes no sense, and especially his response. When Jesus says, hey, or when Jesus says, I'll come to your home, he's like, I'm not worthy. He, is, he, doesn't, he doesn't know Jesus is the son of God, but he says, I, I see in you an authority like mine. And Christ is like, yeah, it's not exactly like mine. But look what he says. He goes on, he says, um, verse 10, and when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. But guys, we, here, I, I want you to get this. because we, And we're going to see that sort of phrase a lot in these next few passages. That idea, of, like, I haven't seen much faith. That often gets translated through a poor hermeneutic. That because the centurion had faith that his servant would be healed, that's what healed the servant. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus, the centurion's faith is not what healed the servant. Jesus is who healed the servant, right? That's the key. So what is he talking about? He's saying, because so he says, by your faith, it, it has been done. He's saying, by you seeing me for who I am and just believing that and asking me for something, I'm giving it to you. It isn't about, because what gets preached, sadly, is if you, don't, if, if you would just have more faith in the thing you're praying for. That's, that last part's bad. If you would have more faith, well, we should pray for more faith in Christ. More revelation in who he is. But, but what often gets prayed is you've got to pray believing this prayer, like this thing, and he'll answer. That has nothing to do with it. He answers by his will. Guys, we still believe Jesus heals. Right? He does still heal. We, we pray for that. We pray for physical healing. We pray for spiritual healing. But he heals by his will, not by the amount that we believe in the prayer that we're asking for. We pray believing in him. Does that make sense? Guys, that is, that is so important for us to understand. Because, because to not understand that is to literally put our faith in the wrong thing. Because to believe that my amount of faith in the thing I'm praying is what will bring about that prayer into fruition puts it on me. That's exactly the opposite of the gospel. It's about him. So what I want to pray, so this is, guys, so understand, this is not the, 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 the centurion going, um, going, this, This is not a moment where we go, Lord, give me the faith to believe an answered prayer like the centurion does. What we should be praying is, Lord, give me the eyes to see Jesus the way the centurion did. Because the reason his prayer got answered is because his eyes saw Jesus to have the authority Jesus has. That's the difference, and it makes a huge difference. Now, having said all that, look at your last talking points question. Because there is sort of this other part that we talk that, that, that can't just go unspoken. It says, how do faith, belief, obedience, and results relate to one another? Now, I'm not going to ask for answers out loud because we don't have time. But I, but I, I want you to think about that as, and maybe even have some conversation around the dinner table or the lunch table today. Um, that, that, um, how do faith, belief, obedience, and results, and they're not necessarily like in line, how do they all relate to each other? Now, here's, here's the thing. Guys, I mean, like, part, part, part of what, what I, part of, part of why it, in Matthew 13, just as an example, we'll get there eventually, in Matthew 13, Jesus is back in Nazareth. And it says, he could not perform many miracles there because of their unbelief or lack of belief. And we read that, and we can wrongly say they didn't really believe he could heal they didn't really, really believe he could cast out demons, so he couldn't. If you know the story of how the, Nazareth, how the people of Nazareth viewed Jesus, what was their lack of faith in? Who he was. That's why they tried to throw him off a cliff. Because when he looked at them and said, hey, by the way, I'm God. They're like, all right, off you go, son. His own family wanted to throw him off the cliff. Their lack of faith it didn't have to do with what they were praying about. Their lack of faith had to do with Him. That was what caused the miracles not to happen because they didn't see Jesus for who he is. So it just makes the point ever more clear. Okay, last point. So, have you seen the miracle worker up close? Have you seen him, like, have you felt the touch of Christ in your life? Have you seen him work in, like, bigger, like, wor- like ways? Around, like, like, you've watched him do things it, whether it's in your life or other people's lives, where you're just like, wow, he really is orchestrating all of human history. Crazy as that may sound to us as Westerners. And then that brings us to our last point, And that is, have you witnessed the miracle worker who has all authority everywhere? All the time. That's the last part. So we'll look at verses 14 through 17. It says, when Jesus... Entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law bring sick uh, be, lying sick with fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now I'm going to back up a step and connect that because because we we put breaks here, and I skipped this little part about I mean it's not it's, in, it's an important part. We'll come back to it when we get to more kingdom talk, but the part in, in eleven through um. Our verses 11, 11, 12, and 13, Jesus is talking about his ever-expanded ministry. That Like, like man, you Jews are not... I'm, it's not just the Jewish people I've come for. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the Son of Man. He's, he's alluding to um, Daniel chapter 7. Or he's, like he's, he's, he's conveying this kingdom. But then Matthew jumps to verse, thir- or to verse 14, and it says, And when, Peter entered, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he sees Peter's mother-in-law. First of all, that tells you that the first pope was married. I'm just going to let that hang there. If that went went over your head, you just chew on it later. It'll catch up. You'll catch up. Um, Peter had a mother-in-law. That means he had a wife, right? So he, so his mother-in-law is sick. He walks in because this is just who Jesus is, and he's like, "Hey, get up. It's okay." And he heals her. Let me ask you a question. Back to the centurion thing, and back to even the leper. How much faith did, did, how much faith in being healed from the fever did Peter's mother-in-law convey? Zero. Zero. Not a thing. So if her faith in being healed, is in being healed is what's gonna heal her, how'd that happen? Jesus heals who Jesus wants to heal. Her faith did not make a whit bit of difference. Right? He just does. And so and he touched her and her fever left her and she rose and began to serve them. So there's no faith expressed. Frankly, there's no faith expressed in the next few verses. Look at this. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with the word and he healed all who were sick. Now, again, how much faith is represented? Like, like the, the demon-possessed person, did they believe, did they just really, 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 really believe that he was gonna cast the demon out? Apparently Not. Did they just really, really, really believe that they were gonna be phys- In one, he differentiates the spiritual from the physical healing. And again, this is here, Matthew's just touching on this idea. We're gonna spend a, a chunk of time next week looking at how, how he deals with like the demonic um, in, in greater in, um, in in a greater way with the rest of the chapter, chapter eight. But here, but here he's just saying, hey, Jesus has authority over he can he has authority to heal who he wants to heal. Peter's mother-in-law, he has the authority to, to demons. He's like, with the word get, out. We'll see it next week. It's not a conversation. It's a word. He's like, be gone. And the demons flee. Right? That's because, because it's about him and his will. And that's ultimately what he's trying to show us, even here. But part of the question is, do we even believe, because I do, I do want you to chew on this because it will lead us into next week as well, do we believe, if this whole, idea, we're talking about kingdom and king, do we even believe that, that there is a battle going on for kingdom? In other words, do we really believe that there is this spiritual kingdom that is in the heavenlies and has come because where he has come and we're here, but there's also a worldly kingdom that is ruled by the God of this world who is Satan and it has a spiritual realm as well. Right, like, like the passage I didn't have you turn to in 1 Peter that was written 30 years after. This isn't just, oh, well, this was all because Christ hadn't died and been buried and risen again, and now the spiritual stuff is gone. That's not tr- That's not biblical. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, resist the devil, and he will flee you. What in the world is Paul talking about when he talks about, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, when he's talking about that before he gets to the armor of God, and he says that we, are to, um, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of this present darkness, against the forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Well, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the, de- the, 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 um, the political party that doesn't vote the way you want? Is that what that means? No, he's talking about demons. 30 years after Christ rose. Guys, they're real. The demonic is real. And that's part of why Matthew brings it up. It hasn't ended there's a, there is a teaching out there that focuses way too much on it, and there's also teaching out there that focuses way too little. But then, but then we deal with like, but then, then what are we talking about with this whole kingdom and war? That's the point. The point is that, that in the end, what's going on in the spiritual and the heavenlies and what's going on down here on earth, those two things are going to slam back together when he restores all things. And then Satan and his demons are going to be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, along with all who have rejected the gospel. That's what should be motivating us. Guys, get this though. This is just sort of wrap this whole thing up about, this, about healing and et cetera for now. Just for today because we'll come back to it even next week. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. This is, this is what I hope our church's focus would be. Not our only focus but our primary focus. The healing of the sick is a great miracle. And the raising of the dead an even greater one. But the salvation of a lost soul is the greatest miracle of all, Amen. right? Like th- that's what we need to we, we, we should be praying a whole lot more for that, right? Than, than maybe we are. So that brings us to our last thing, and this and it's sort of an it's sort of an um uh, an aside because Matthew. So so if you look at so look at um look at verse. Let's see. Look at verse eighteen. The cost of following Jesus. And we'll pick it up here next week. And I'm going I'm to have the music team come up in just a minute. It says in verse 18 Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That means the other side of the lake. Now, jump down to verse 23. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. So, verses 19 through 22 are just an aside. Like Matthew's sharing, and I mean, it happened. But Matthew's sharing, like, it's not really germane to the flow of the narrative. Like, to, it doesn't move the story forward. Because what happens is, Jesus says, hey, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. I'm going to go back to the area of Gennesaret. And, and, um, and so he's going to get in the boat, and he's going to go across. While he's, maybe while he's on his way to the boat, these two disciples come up to him. One is a scribe. right? And this is what these verses talk about. One is a scribe. What A, scri- a scribe that was a disciple of his, which would have been, like, really not good for the scribe. Because a scribe would have been like a religious leader. so And he comes and he says, says, I I will leave everything. I want to follow you. And, and, And Jesus says, Hey man, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you really want to follow me? What that scene is telling us is the scribe had something to lose. He had, like, he was probably well off financially. He probably had a family. He certainly had prestige. And what Jesus is saying is, do you really want to follow me? Because I'm not even sure where I'm sleeping tomorrow. And then this other disciple comes and says, hey, let me bury my father, and then I will follow you. And, that, and when Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, doesn't that sound almost callous? Like, ouch. Like, yeah, you know, my dad passed away a couple years ago. If like, Jesus said, hey, hey, you know what? Don't worry about him. You're following me. That's not what Jesus means. That's not what, it was a colloquialism. What it meant was, or an idiom of the time, what he meant was, it meant, let me stay in my family until my family passes away and I become the patriarch. Like, I become the leader of the family. I inherit all the stuff, and then I'll come. Once I have some earthly security, then I'll come follow you. Then Jesus is like, yeah, that's not what that, he's like, you're two, both guys. What Jesus is saying is, it costs something to follow me are you willing to let go of what you have to grab hold of what Christ wants to give you? Like that's ultimately the question. The the, the reality is what Jesus, what Matthew's showing us here in this little snippet in these three verses, and then we'll pick it up here and run through the rest of the chapter next week, Lord willing, is he's saying um, think twice before you follow Jesus because it's gonna cost you because it's going to cost you something. Guys, if we have fully witnessed the beauty and the majesty of the miracle worker, what that will look like in your life, and i asked the music team to come up with this, what that will look like in your life is for you to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Ultimately, that's it. it, just it, it, it I, could, I can't make it any simpler. If you have beheld the witness of the miracle worker, meaning you have, you have seen the greatest miracle in the history of the world, you have become born again. What that looks like is when, is when your wants run up against his will, you're willing to let go. That's the point Matthew's trying to make here at the end as he closes this. That's the question that he wants to ask. But why? Because Jesus wants you to be like, like poor. No, because it demonstrates your belief in his authority. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for um, the beautiful truth that... Um, That as followers of Christ, we are born again. We're born not of the flesh, nor the will of man, nor blood, but of the Spirit. That your Spirit, in dwelling a sinner like me, a sinners like us, um, is is an amazing miracle that took the death of Christ to accomplish. And that only would have been efficient for us. That only would have worked if he really is who he says he is. Because otherwise he couldn't have done what he claimed to have done. That he claimed that he was going to die for the sins of the world. And that only can be true if he is king of the world. So let us respond. Just saying, Jesus, you are my king. Let my life be lived for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.